The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest reports on the fighting for Bakhmut, report on Vladimir Putin's visit to occupied Ukraine, and we look at the diplomacy of French President Emmanuel Macron amid his overtures to China. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 18th of April, one year and 53 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and assistant comment editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure, hi David, hi everybody. So let's uh, let's start in Bakhmut, the city in the centre of the Donbass, been blasted now for, for months and... Uh, Russian forces are said to have increased their use of heavy artillery and airstrikes around the city. That comes from General Alexander Sersky, who's Ukraine's commander of ground forces. He said currently the enemy is increasing the activity of heavy artillery and the number of airstrikes, turning the city into ruins, which we've seen. We've all seen that. It is a a completely blasted city. Today's UK Defence Intelligence report talks about the the subject and the fighting there in Bakhmut and says that there's a realistic possibility, their words, realistic possibility that Russia has reduced troop numbers and is decreasing offensive action around Donetsk city, most likely to divert resources towards the Bakhmut sector. It's um, it's definitely of, of huge symbolic value to them, if only to say they have a, a victory. It'll be very interesting to see if they do take the city, either by force or on account of any Ukrainian withdrawal, quite how big they go on on trumpeting a victory there because you know it is it's absolutely Pyrrhic definition of a Pyrrhic victory. And then MOD go on and say in Bakhmut, Russian MOD and Wagner group forces, although they continue to make creeping advances, the front line is is largely just just to the west of the main railway line. So let's just just for those that aren't very familiar with the city. The city is back is about a shaped like a diamond, uh, based around two main roads: one running north south, one running west to east. And the cardinal points of the city of each of those points north south east west about five k's from the centre, the centre crossroads of those of those roads. So imagine crossroads diamond shaped around that five k's either direction. That's very roughly the size and shape of the city. Now. The railway line runs through the city north-south, approximately 1k west-ish of that road, of the north-south road. So Russian forces have advanced about two-thirds of the way through the city from the east. UK Defence Intelligence go on to say that Ukrainian forces are holding the Russian envelopment from the south along what was the old east-west road, which is about you know, a few hundred metres south of the of the current one. And that's so that's squeezing Ukrainian forces into this northwest corner. Now, interestingly, UK MOD go on to say in today's briefing, they say for both sides, 
the exact sequencing of any major drawdown of their units around Bakhmut has become a critical question, with Ukraine wanting to free up an offensive force while Russia likely aspires to regenerate an operational reserve. Okay, so that's interesting because they're talking about for both sides and they're talking about a major drawdown of their units around Bakhmut. Again, we've got to ask, well, is that their assessment? What are they basing that on? How are they assessing that both sides want to withdraw from the area? Neither side has, has shown any great willingness uh, to withdraw up to now. And then when they go on to say Ukraine wants to free up an offensive force or Russia likely aspires to regenerate an operational reserve, again, that's fairly specific. I just question that slightly. I mean, arguably, both sides would like to generate an operational reserve and both sides would like to free up an offensive force. So I think the UK defence intelligence estimate there, unless they are trying to signal to us, the public, that, that they... That they've seen that they've seen something that uh, you know they're not they're not going to put the sort of primary source, the intelligence source on on view. I was just a little bit surprised by that by that by passing it so as as they've done. I'd be interested in, in people's views on that. And again, I'll just make the point as it made last week: the road to the west, which is keeping the Ukrainian forces supplied, still seems to be open. Last week, you'll remember Russia claimed that they had closed the road, but said they had closed it by covering it with fire. And I made the point that that is not the same thing. You know, it's still it's very very dangerous if the if the road is open to fire, particularly direct fire. So you know, a, a, a gun or a missile tank shell that you are firing directly at something on the road, as opposed to indirect fire, artillery, mortars, long range missiles, that kind of thing. So very very dangerous if that if the road is covered by fire. But you can only say you've closed it if you physically have it in your possession, i.e. you've got troops on it, you've, you've advanced beyond it, you hold that piece of ground. You cannot say the enemy can't, can't roam around at their risk if you don't physically hold that ground. OK, enough, enough there. Now let's, uh, let's move on. So this is uh, a report here from the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, very uh, commendable source. They are saying today that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the, of the Wagner Group, they are saying he's seemingly regaining some favour with Vladimir Putin, likely as a result of the Russian conventional military's inability to accomplish the tasks Putin set for it during the winter offensive through Donbass. Now, we know that there's been this spat between Wagner and the wider MOD, Sergei Shoigu, the, the defence minister, and Gerasimov, the, the head of the Russia's armed, armed forces, for months Prigozhin was complaining some weeks ago that, that his forces were being starved of ammunition, particularly artillery ammunition, as a, as a result of this spat. But ISW is saying that Wagner forces appear to be receiving reinforcements, ammunition and political recognition. And uh, Wagner-affiliated sources said yesterday that the group is training up to three motorised rifle brigades of mobilised personnel to reinforce Wagner's flanks in Bakhmut. Again, on that last point, I would I would question that. I mean, OK, fine. They might be training up to three motorised rifle brigades, but A, that's a hell of a lot of people. Secondly, as the name suggests, a motorised rifle brigade is not just soldiers running at the enemy with guns. That's vehicles, that's armoured personnel carriers like the sort of the BMP series and the and the uh, TRs. So BMPs are the Boyovaya Machina Picotti, I seem to remember. Armoured infantry fighting vehicles, the BTR, the Bronny Transporters, they are armoured personnel carriers. But using all that together is is quite tricky. So training people up to use that, especially up to three brigades worth, a brigade being about 5,000 people-ish. That's a bit toppy, maybe 4,000. But, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people. That's, that's a big old effort. So, yeah, they, they might have started training these people. But, you know, we're not going to see that 
on the field in any meaningful capacity anytime soon. However, ISW go on and say that Prigozhin confirmed that Russian airborne forces, the VDV as we as we hear them um, referred to, they are operating alongside Wagner, which is interesting. As I say, that spat of recent months seems to have, there seems to be a temporary truce there, and said that. Um, the Prigozhin's ability to to kind of get more artillery shells and ammunition out of the MOD indicates he's uh, he, he's this sort of rapprochement with the with the MOD. And just finally on this bit, the ISW is saying that the Russian State Duma, their parliament, are considering amendments to law on veterans' rights in order to grant veteran status to well private military companies, but obviously it's Wagner we're talking about here and other volunteers. And Prigozhin has been lobbying for a long time now for Wagner personnel to be recognised as participants in the war and hence be granted veteran status. It, it confers certain advantages, financial and otherwise, in Russian society. The adoption of this bill would show that Prigozhin's position in the Kremlin's inner circle has certainly improved. I've got a little bit more on... Um, we'll talk about Putin's visit to Ukraine, but just need to take a little break there. Thank you very much, Dom. Yes, and when you come back, let's talk about Putin's visit to Hassan. Francis, can I come to you? We've seen today the first images of the Wall Street Journal journalist Evan Gaskovich in, in Russia, uh, the first images we've seen since he was detained. I know there's a lot going on, but maybe would you like to start there? Thanks, David. It's good to be back after a few days away. This is very much a moving story, but as we speak, a Russian court is said to be denying bail for US reporter Evan Guskovich, who of course was arrested on charges of espionage, for which he could face up to 20 years in prison. We've been covering this story ever since his arrest. We saw a glimpse of him just before going on air. He was standing behind the glass case, which of course we've become very used to seeing people in, in Russian courts behind these sort of transparent glass cases. He had his arms crossed, but he did smile at somebody in the audience, possibly the US ambassador, who we understand was there. Now, he was, as I say, detained in Russia on espionage charges, the first since the Cold War of an instance where a journalist was arrested on Russian soil. So a a very significant symbolically in terms of what's happened, but also politically, it gives Putin a, a valuable bargaining chip. I understand that Literally, as I say, this is evolving as we speak. A judge has just read out a ruling saying that his detention should remain in place. So he has been denied bail. Mr. Gaskovich has responded in Russian, all understood. Thank you very much. So that's all that we have at the moment. But as I say, very much an evolving story, this. And I think that the the court documents that have been provided by Mr. Gaskovich's lawyer are only providing sort of basic details about the case, but it's very, very clear that uh, they they intend to uh, sort of plead not guilty, as it were, to these charges. And Mr. Kaskovich's lawyer has said that he will not be responding to a request for comment at this stage. Now, the ironic thing here is, of course, this is designed to deter journalists from operating in Russia and as well as looking into the Russian state more broadly. But in many ways, it has also the effect of drawing more and more attention to Russia and to the domestic sphere there. Of course, we've spoken a lot about the case of Vladimir Karamuza, who yesterday got the 25-year jail sentence for uh, effective sedition and uh, treason charges for simply talking about the war and for being critical of, of Putin's regime. The highest sentence that he could have received, of course, given the charges. Again, very revealing. 
And again, this also, it raises attention to the number of Ukrainians who are also in Russian captivity. Whenever we hear about these cases, it makes you wonder who else is there. And it leads the journalists to investigate that too. And interestingly, President Zelensky announced this morning that a total of 2,235 Ukrainian men and women from captivity since the war began have been returned to Ukraine. Of course, as we've covered on the podcast previously, it's very, very challenging bringing some of these individuals back, particularly if they are children. And it's quite often been charities that have had to be operating to bring them back independently, working with the parents, of course, receiving advice from the Ukrainian government as well, and with Western support and charities too. It's very challenging, but clearly... Zelensky is keen to emphasize how many Ukrainians remain in captivity, but how many they've managed to successfully bring back. He said in a statement, we remember everyone, we will bring back each and every one. So an evolving story, David, but a not insignificant one because of the attention it draws more broadly to the uh, justice. And I use that in the loosest possible sense that Western journalists and campaigners and indeed Ukrainians can receive in the Russian court system. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, can I come back to you first? Can you talk to us a little bit about Vladimir Putin's visit to Kherson? Yeah, so this was announced this morning by the Kremlin. He's supposed to have visited um, Kherson region, so down on the south coast, the the city of Henichesk, which is just north of Crimea. It's basically on the northwest point of the Sea of Azov, so it's down on the coast, just north of of the peninsula itself. This is apparently where Russia has moved its regional headquarters to, having pulled out of of hairs on late last year. So the Kremlin is saying this is his second trip to the what they're calling the occupied territories. Oh, no, sorry, <laughs> that's what we're calling the occupied territories in as many months. And he had a, a, a military command meeting. He heard reports from the airborne forces. That's the VDV, as we have mentioned earlier on, and the um, the Dnieper army group, as well as senior officers. He was, a, he was supposedly told his troops, it is important for me to hear your opinion on how the situation is developing, to listen to you, to exchange information. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure he actually gives us stuff about listening to them, any exchange of information or hearing their opinion on the situation. When I read that, I was I was minded of the the great quote from Brian Clough, who was a uh, a football manager here in the UK, died I think twenty odd years ago, but he was, was a fantastic fantastic football manager, and he was asked how he how he deals with any disagreement in the team, and he said, if I had an argument with a player, we'd sit down and talk about it for twenty minutes thrash it all through and then decide that I was right. And I think it's just pretty much the same thing here with, with, with Putin. So if he goes there at all and, and listens to people, fine. But he's already decided he's right, so it doesn't really matter what they say. Now, I think we should stand fast the, the chatter about whether or not it was him or a body double. I do note that this visitor's willingness to shake hands with, with all and sundry, which is in marked contrast to Putin's alleged germophobia back in Moscow when he you know, we see him sitting at those uh, those conference tables, the, the length of a high miles barrel. But I think we should assume that these reports are accurate and then think about well, what does it mean? So senior political and military figures visiting the men and women at the front is, you know, time is endless. It's been been there for forever. So but what's the purpose? Is the purpose there to gain ground truth, to get a good understanding of the tactical situation and the morale, welfare conditions of the people that, that he has sent into battle? Or is it a moment for the visitor to, to grandstand, basically, to pose in front of cameras, um, putting on a mock display of concern? This is a relatively safe area. So it's a, it's, is he there to earn brownie points 
from an audience far away from the battlefield, from, from a domestic audience, perhaps. I think in the case of Putin, we can utterly discount that he's there. He's interested in any ground truth and doing his bit to raise morale. I mean, it's over a year now since he launched this full scale invasion. In that time, he's had ample opportunity to show any genuine concern for his troops. We've, we've not seen any of that in, in the form of decent conditions of service or equipment or training or leadership. He's, you know, he's, he's just chosen not to. He could also, in the last year, if he'd so wished, establish a system to gain a far better idea of what was going on at the front by not indulging the toadies around the, the Kremlin and creating this sort of sycophantic and dishonest reporting system. So he's had all this time to, if he was that concerned about it, he could have done. But what we've seen certainly over the last year, and basically since he's since he first came to power about 20 years ago, he's interested in military matters more from a point of historical fantasy, uh, I would suggest, than, than reality. I'd be interested in France's views here. But, you know, in my view, Putin dreams of, a, of an empire that's long since diminished and only lasted about 70 years anyway. He's not taken the time to invest in the human capital, the economic capital, to, 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 to breathe life into that, into that kind of empire. He, he just uses the military for, for his own ends. And he's here, I think, he's here taking the only course available to him, which is to perform a very heavy choreographed visit to ecstatic and very well-fed officers by the, by the look of things in the hope that this activity will, will convince the world that he's in charge of his magnanimity, of his omnipotence. You know, I think this is all a complete sham. I, I don't think these very occasional, totally stage-managed forays will fool anyone, least of all himself or the, or the troops he, he visits. They're not going to feel <laughs> loved after this. I, it, it's just not, it just doesn't fit with the pattern. His actions don't fit in the pattern that we've, we've seen of him ever, let alone since February last year. I think his actions here are born more of the need to show progress and show control, even if it's just an illusion. And I think, I think we will see through that. I think the Russian forces will see through that. So I don't, I don't think it's actually he's increased Russian operational effectiveness at all by this visit. It's, um, it might shore up a, a bit of domestic support potentially, which is important, I grant you, in the, in the society that he's created in, in Russia. But um, I can't imagine the troops will be ecstatic to see him if he went and visited any troops at all then they they would have had you know ration packs coming out of their ears they would have been covered in the, the latest western gear yeah everything would be fine and dandy so he's visited but his his lack of um visits and lack of care in every other aspect of his of the way he he purports to be in charge i think speaks volumes about his his leadership and how much care and attention he he pays to the the men and women under his command mostly men here in ukraine so, yeah, so fine, he's visited, but I don't think we should read too much into it. It stands in stark contrast to the visits, I think, by President Zelensky for the, uh, when he visits the Ukrainian troops, not only the, the number of times he's been, where he goes to, and, um, and in response to particular actions. I think this, is, this action from Putin is entirely choreographed and stage-managed and, and should be treated as the piece of theatre that it is. Thank you, Dom. Francis, I know you had some thoughts on this visit as well. Yes, I have a few further reflections on Putin's visit to Hezon. I'll also try and weave in some analysis from our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyevia. So, in my view, this is a visit, as, as Dom has alluded to, really an attempt to 
to show the world that, that the region is now stable enough that it can be feasibly considered Russian territory, something helpful for propaganda purposes at home, but also abroad, especially in an evolving context where negotiations are being actively discussed, something which I'll turn to shortly. Something Natalia was keen to emphasize and has written up on our website is that the manner of this visit does also showcase the Kremlin's anxiety, whatever it's trying to, to put out, anxiety about what would be really a hostile local population. Everything is stage managed, as Don says. There's no spontaneous interactions with locals. And it really is very stark contrast with uh, the sort of what seemingly genuine outpouring of support he received on his first trip to Crimea after Moscow illegally annexed that in 2014. There were then large portions of individuals in that territory who seemed to throng the streets and were chanting Putin and, and Russia. And this is, as I said, direct con contrast to that, according to Natalia. Those scenes that I just described in Crimea would be inconceivable in Hezon now. Not a day passes without news of yet another act of sabotage or a bombing against occupation authorities in the area in that the Kremlin, you know, claims it's, it's, it's its territory. With all of this, uh, this, these security threats, Putin has to hole up in effectively a windowless room with his generals and pour over battle maps. It. For all of the semblance of strength, I think really when you dive into the details of this, it, it puts forward a look that's quite the opposite. Now, I mentioned negotiations. Evidently, China is continuing to position itself as a key broker in future discussions to end this war, something I've been talking about for some time now. The Brazilian president concluded his visit to China on Saturday by urging the United States to stop encouraging the war in Ukraine. That's his term and that the EU needs to start talking about peace, to quote him directly. Now, interestingly, President Macron of France is looking to work with China to establish a framework for Ukraine war negotiations, we understand this morning. According to Bloomberg, Macron is to approach China with a plan that he believes could potentially lead to talks between Russia and Ukraine. He's asked his foreign policy advisor, Emmanuel Bonn, to work with a top Chinese diplomat to establish a framework that could be used as a potential basis for future negotiations. According to sources who are familiar with the plan, they believe that talks could begin as early as the summer if all goes well. And what's particularly important is that Ukraine is, is successful in its spring offensive and that could put it in a strong position for those talks. But what's interesting is very unclear whether Macron has any support from Ukraine with regard to this or its allies for these kind of discussions with China. My instinct is that he does have some support within the European Union. Of course, EU Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen was with him in China recently, but I don't think it's supported by all and certainly not some of the Baltic states and, uh, and, and Poland. And, and I don't think Britain, I would say, would go as far as supporting this either. And really, I, I, I struggle to see how this talk of negotiations is helpful from a Western Ukrainian perspective, as nothing has fundamentally changed from where we were at the start of the year. Both sides, Ukraine and Russia, have clear definitions of victory which they will not be willing to adapt or concede unless they're forced to do so. And if the West stands by its commitments to Ukraine, then Ukraine is not going to be willing to concede any of their territory 
in a negotiation now or in the summer. The only negotiation they want is Russia's unconditional departure from what is legally their territory. So I would posit discussing negotiation now feels more likely to harm the Ukrainian cause than to give them a lift, frankly. Likewise, for Russia, Putin, I, you could say, isn't really in a position to concede any concessions in negotiations either. He's not going to certainly not going to give Crimea or arguably these annexed territories. His own power depends on them. So until something fundamentally changes in the military or political context, I don't believe these conversations are particularly helpful, nor will they be impactful. But nonetheless, it's clearly a helpful smokescreen, I think, for other conversations taking place with regard to Taiwan, with regard to strengthening ties between certain Western countries and China. And so the negotiations, which is, of course, what China wants, offer it by putting itself in this position of wanting to be the chief broker in these negotiations, gives it other countries an excuse to deal with them and to strengthen their kind of diplomatic ties with certain Western countries. Clearly, and we know this reported on it, China thinks there are opportunities in Europe to win allies at this moment. And there is some evidence that they have been successful in the overtures they have made to France and Germany in particular, as we've talked about. Francis, can I just can I just very quickly jump in and ask you, I mean, you've been following Macron's diplomacy and his efforts at diplomacy throughout the full-scale invasion. I mean, it's, it's almost one of the first things we talked about, uh, how, you know, his, his calls to Putin. To, to, to what extent in, do you think this latest plan, assuming, assuming these sources are correct, it, it, do, I mean, do you think it's more about Mr. Macron than it, than it is, and France's power, than it is about Ukraine-Russia? I mean, maybe that's a very unfair way to put that question, but what, what do you make of that? I, I think that's actually a, a very helpful way of thinking about this. I mean, every country, it, to an extent, is thinking about this in terms of their own benefit. I think France does. We know that given the fact that when he went to China, he took a lot of French business win with him and as well as cultural figures. I think that that explains a lot. He's obviously talked a lot about also the importance of, of strategic autonomy from the US as well. I think he was talking about that in a European context. But I, yeah, I don't think we should underestimate the fact that countries are looking out for themselves. Of course, Germany as well is looking to extend its relationship with China. Um, and, and even in the past, Britain, of course, in, in during the sort of Cameron and Osborne era was really bigging up its future relationship with China in a way that now I think many would consider rather naive. But at the time, this was seen the, the, the great extended hand. But I do think there is something else going on here, David, which is that Macron does ideologically believe, I think, in this idea of, of Europe working with China in the long term in an attempt to stop there being some kind of future um, Cold War II or whatever. And he has some commitment from within the EU, I think some support, certainly within the Commission, for that project. I mean, as I say, I think it's very significant that Ursula von der Leyen did visit with him. Now, admittedly, it was under the auspices of putting pressure on China with regard to Ukraine. But nonetheless, I think that what we're seeing here is the signals, suggestions of high profile conversations that are taking place with the with EU figures present, Macron present as the sort of West negotiator in chief with China to try and get them to shift. And as part of that is also to broker stronger ties with them. Now, there'll be others who view the only way to change China's position is to have stronger sanctions. And I think there is a sign of a, of a tension here, because interestingly, within the G7, we understand today that G7 foreign ministers have warned that those who are helping Russia wage war in Ukraine would face severe costs as they 
are seeking to offer a more united front on China. I think we all know which countries they're particularly referring to here. Now, at the moment, the G7 having been engaging in talks in Japan, I think it's in Kurosawa, and top diplomats are sort of unveiling plans clearly to make it harder for countries to break the sanctions that are currently on Russia and have spoken pretty strongly against uh, about cracking down on those who are helping Russia evade the measure and acquire weapons. And we've spoken already about how China have helped to funnel some weapons in through the back door, seemingly, to Russia in recent months. There's been lots of investigations that have been done on this. And it does suggest, as I say, that there's something of a shift is going on, an indicator perhaps that diplomats are waking up to the fact that China really is the key to ending the war in ways that are favourable to Ukraine. But one could argue that is it too little too late? And is there, David, as you suggest, tensions within the alliance, as it were, with regards to the best way of keeping China on side? You could argue that the time to be doing this, if they're going to be stronger on China, was much earlier on, when before China was in a position to tacitly support Russia and had effectively nailed its colours to the mast. And of course, there are also open questions about how severe these sanctions could be. It all feels rather vague at the moment. And it does feel like you've got the G7 saying one thing today, you've got Macron saying another. That unity of purpose that the West has managed to at least keep up the facade of for some time now does seem to be cracking a little bit at this crucial crucial juncture with China clearly waiting to see, I think, for what the, happens with this counteroffensive. And if the counteroffensive of the Ukraine is not as successful as clearly Ukraine hopes them to be and many in the West are hoping them to be, they think that will be opportunity for them to say, we think this war needs to end and here's how to go about that. We're willing to be the chief brokers. So a lot going on in the diplomatic space and a lot of different interests who are at play, which are at play here. And it will be remains to be seen how much that conversation will change as a product of the shifting sands on the military space. A lot of this maneuverings are happening, I think, because not much seems to be changing on the battlefield. And so you get diplomats, you get Western leaders who are starting to get a little bit wobbly. And that, again, speaks to the urgency and importance, I think, of the counteroffensive for Ukraine in the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much, Francis. We'll come back to you later for some final diplomatic updates, I think. But, Dom, can I turn to you? First of all, just to ask if you've got any further updates from your side, but also just, it'd be good to spend not too long, but it'd be good to hear in a, you know, in, in quite a precise way what we think. I mean, I was absolutely fascinated. We've sort of covered it earlier, but the MOD def- Defence Intelligence update, that final short sentence. I'll just read it out again. For both sides, the exact sequencing of any major drawdown of their units around Bakhmut has become a critical question, with Ukraine wanting to free up an offensive force, while Russia likely aspires to regenerate an operational reserve. You've commented upon it earlier, but I just wanted to draw back slightly and ask you, what do you think the MOD thinks is happening? Because that that really struck me, this idea that actually, they seem to be suggesting to me anyway, that both sides actually are kind of looking elsewhere, want to potentially draw their forces away from Bakhmut, Ukraine to build up their offensive forces ahead of any counteroffensive. And Russia, as the MOD says, aspires to regenerate an operational reserve. So it'd be quite useful just very quickly to hear some definitions of that and what you think the MOD thinks is happening. Yeah, OK. So the first thing I would caution listeners to consider here is that, that this is my analysis on the MOD's analysis of a very fluid and opaque situation. So, you know, you've got to be careful with withdrawing too too many firm conclusions here. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to draw any firm 
firm conclusions. But firstly, what do we mean by an operational reserve? So essentially in in military parlance, there's three levels of warfare, strategic, operational and tactical. So tactical is the, the down and dirty the individual movement of an individual soldier or a tank or a a subunit of 10 tanks, a unit, sort of 500 men and women. So those are tactics, the actual how you move and fight on the battlefield. And then take two steps up from that. The strategic level is where are we going to go next? Do we pile into southern Europe or do we go via the Arctic or do we go and invade the moon or, or what have you? The big old political the political demands from which should drop the military tasks because the military should always be working in conjunction or, or towards the, the political end. If they get out of kilter, then you know, you've got big problems. And in between those is the operational level, which depending, I mean, it's all very fluid, but depending on the, on the size of the war, if you like, looking at, looking at the war in Ukraine here, operationally, we'd say, are they going to go north? Is the, is the Ukrainian counteroffensive going to come through the north, through Kharkiv? Is it going to go south through Hezon or is it going to go straight through the middle in the Donbass? Those kind of those decisions that that it doesn't have a it's not fixed to geography, but but just in the space of this war. I mean, we're talking hundreds of miles of difference between those three options, if you like. That's a kind of operational decision, operational level decision. So let's, for example, say that that Ukraine decided they wanted to go north and, and, and push a big counteroffensive north through the Kharkiv area and then do a right hook, a, you know, a swing around to the right and come piling down, piling down from the north. They would want their forces in the middle, around the Donbass, and in the south, around Hezon, of course, with the air, with maritime, with, the, with cyber and space and all the, all the other domains as well to be working in concert here. But they'd want those two sort of military sectors of the middle and the south to hold firm, to, to almost be the anvil upon which they can this this force maneuvering from the north can smash Russia Russian forces against. So that's a kind of operational level. Um, when we talk about the operational level in this in this context, that's the sort of size and scope and scale I'm thinking of here. So when we talk about Russia wanting to develop an operational reserve, we are talking thousands of troops. We're talking at probably at least a division, so it's three ish brigades. Each brigade, as I said depending on if it's if it's infantry heavy or tank heavy you're talking low thousands of of troops but you know you've got something in your back pocket to throw at a big problem if if um you know 20,000 Ukrainians suddenly hoved into view from the the Kharkiv area and 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 hung a right turn and started coming south through the through the Donbass Russia would want to have a very sizable force to to stop it and to um to and to push it back and try and exploit any any success there so that that's what we mean by an operational level of reserve it's not just five or six blokes you've got sat on their bergens doing nothing right now that can uh, go and put a fire out you know we're talking many thousands of people and vehicles and artillery and air and and all the rest of it all working together all trained and all ready to go that that force up up, up your sleeve so yes of course russia wants to be able to develop an operational Reserve. They are holding in the centre at the moment. Well, they're holding across the across the front. Although there seems to be very little activity to the north and and the south at the moment. But Russia and Ukraine obviously are attacking and defending in equal measure generally along the rest of the or along the whole front. Really, these absolutely minimal gains that Russia's making in Bakhmut. So the both sides need to generate this this reserve. You should have a reserve at every level. So at the tactical level, you would have a squad. You know, six six soldiers if you like, uncommitted for a platoon, or you might have a a platoon or half a platoon, of th- a platoon being about 30 people, half a platoon as a reserve for a company attack, company of 120-ish fighters or 
or a company for a brigade attack and so on and so forth. You always have you should always have some kind of reserve. And so it's it, it is of course wise for both to be to be thinking about this. I would I would just so the question I think for for me looking at Bakhmut is the defence that Ukraine is putting up there and I mentioned this briefly last week is it is it still I mean they're taking a lot of pain Ukraine is it eating into the bone yet of what they of of their defence there and is it eat, eating into any troops that have been committed or or would have been committed to this reserve and for this counter offensive is Ukraine having to deploy troops into Bakhmut that they would otherwise want to be rested, carry on training, have some home time, get a bit of leave, get ready mentally and physically for the fight to come? I'm not sure that they are. So Phillips O'Brien, who who writes on international security for the University of St. Andrews, again, we should all be following him on Twitter. He he, write, he writes a, a sort of weekend blog, very, very well worth subscribing to him to to read those. And he was saying, likewise, he does not see any any evidence that, that Ukraine has had to commit forces that it is preparing for this counteroffensive into the defence of Bakhmut, which might go back to the, the tactics that we're seeing Russia employ in Bakhmut, which is very First World War. It's very just, just up and atom boys type thing. And hence the hundreds of casualties a day that they are, they are having inflicted upon them. So I think, I think all in all, we, we should note this UK Defence Intelligence report today. I, I go back to my point that, of course, both sides will be trying to generate operational advantage or, or trying to generate a, a forward momentum, and they'd both be trying to trying to generate an operational reserve. And as we said, Bakhmut doesn't really do an awful lot. It is a crossroads, but it's a fairly minor crossroads. It doesn't doesn't really go anywhere. It's not a major logistic hub. It's not a major power political power center. So, you know, it's it's symbolic for Russia. And we, we've seen Ukraine fighting for it in order to wear down the Russian forces and keep them committed. They've been happy to do to take that fight, even though it's been extremely painful. So they both would want to would want to disengage. But on their own terms, Russia cannot disengage now from Bakhmut without some form of victory. And for as long as the the supposed ratio of about eight or nine Russian casualties for every single Ukrainian casualty still seems to be the metric then Ukraine are happy to, is happy to stay there and fight. But of course, they, they would both rather be elsewhere. They'd both rather be 50Ks down the road in either, either direction. But it's, it's not happening around there. And they haven't been able to generate the, um, the force. Russia's not been able to generate the force to punch through. Ukraine has chosen not to commit its force to try and punch through because of this anticipated counteroffensive. So, yes, they both want to be elsewhere. Yes, they'd rather use their troops for something else, but for very very different reasons. Neither of those, which I see changing anytime soon, they are both committed to this fight. And I think at the moment that that benefits Ukraine more. OK, you've got Putin visiting down Hezon. They're trying to change the time zone of these uh, the temporarily occupied territories to Russia time. They're trying to Russia file. Is that the word? Russificate the whole of the the territory they are holding but you know as we saw in afghanistan when the taliban said look you might have the watches we have the time i think that metric sort of applies here and the time right now i think is not not infinite but i think the time right now is on ukraine's side they are happy to meet this fight and, and continue to engage in this fight because if they have to withdraw fine you never want to go backwards but you know it would be for sound tactical and operational reasons but russia simply cannot withdraw they have to they have to take this bit of rubberized ground in the east of the Donbass and stick a flag on it because there's too much political investment in it right now.
Thank you very much, Dom. Francis, I know you've got a couple of quick diplomatic updates for us, and then we'll go to our final thoughts. Thanks, David. Well, of course, we've been discussing the Pentagon leaks a lot recently, and there's been a lot of speculation as to which aspects of it may be 100% accurate, which parts of it may be designed to be misleading, either the Russians or the Ukrainians. There's all sorts of speculations with regards to this. But a snippet that's come out that does seem to have some legitimacy, and indeed, I think the legitimacy of the Pentagon leaks has increased in recent days, particularly with the arrest of the individual that we touched on yesterday, is that Egypt reversed a plan to give rockets to Russia after talks with top US officials and instead offered to make artillery shells for Ukraine. That's according to the latest batch of leaked documents. This is being covered quite extensively by the Washington Post and they give further detail about Egypt's role. Essentially, according to them, Cairo planned to produce up to 40,000 rockets for Moscow and told its officials to keep the deal secret to avoid problems with the West. That's a quote from them. But then what happened is that the Egyptian president ditched the idea in early March and instead decided to sell 155 millimeter artillery shells, which are in short supply in the US, to Washington, which could then send them directly to Ukraine. So it reportedly put a stop to the alleged Moscow plan. And what happened was that there were certain visits to Cairo by senior US State Department officials and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in late February and early March, which managed to push Egypt into this direction. Now, giving a bit more context to this, Egypt is the largest beneficiary of American military aid globally after Israel. It's received over a billion dollars of security assistance annually for decades due to its valuable geopolitical positioning on certain issues as well as militarily. And so I'm imagining, given this, that the Americans leverage that in terms of turning Egypt more towards the Ukrainian courts. And I'm, I'm sure that there have been many instances of this that we have not heard about and have not seen. Further evidence, if needed, of the kind of high-profile conversations that are taking place all the time that usually one has to wait many years for. And as a historian who's been through archives of diplomatic cables marked top secret, usually it's decades. And it's always very exciting to open up these documents and learn what was really going on. And inevitably, we will hear more of this in, in, in the coming years. But what's interesting about this is we're hearing it in real time and are seeing and in a way that will have implications, no doubt, on how Egypt now responds and how they, I'm sure there'll be some awkward conversations with Moscow as a consequence of these leaks and the revelations that will come off the back of them. Now, just lastly, one other story. The grain deal is back with a vengeance, a story that I know is not the most scintillating of stories, but it is an important one, one that's felt on supermarket shelves across Europe, which is why politicians have been very sensitive to it. Russia knows that, and it's why we've covered this length in the past. They use it for leverage in an attempt to alleviate sanctions on their country. Um, but what's been going on the latest is that, uh, and I know this was this was covered a little bit uh, yesterday, and we've covered it extensively in the paper over the last couple of days or so, that certain countries have essentially tried to block an influx of cheaper Ukrainian grain, Central European countries, and now Poland and Ukraine are resuming negotiations to try and reopen the transit of food and grains. The talk started yesterday over the bans by certain Central European countries. Whether they've had a bit of been put pressure on them by Russia, we don't know. And it's seemingly to try and shelter farmers from the impact of an influx of cheaper Ukrainian grain suddenly as a consequence of the, the grain deal. 
Some Black Sea ports were blocked, of course, after Russia's invasion and large quantities of Ukrainian grain have effectively been trapped in Central Europe because of logistical bottlenecks. And this is all an attempt to try and alleviate that and to try and keep the flow going for reasons that are very impactful on the food markets, both in Europe and, of course, in Africa. So an ongoing discussions, no doubt, and one's monitoring and more as we get it, David. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Can we come to our final thoughts? Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, so I'll just ask people to think about the the leadership of, of what we've seen today of this of Putin's visit down south, down in the, the Hezon region. It's broken as we've been on air that uh, President Zelensky has been visiting soldiers in, in Adivka. So that's right down, I mean, that's in the it's in the Donbass. It's about 50 k's south, southwest of Bakhmut, but it's only 10 k's. In fact, it's slightly less than 10 k's north of Donetsk City itself. And this was the area that last week was said to be even more violent than, than Bakhmut. So he's visited soldiers there. It's been reported just now on his official website. He's handed out awards to soldiers, heard reports for military commanders. I mean, sim- similar to... Um, to the purpose, we are told, of, of Putin's visit. President Zelensky is quoted saying, I have the honour to be here today to thank you for your service for defending our land, Ukraine, our families. And I just I just ask you to muse on you know, who is likely to be happier, a Ukrainian soldier seeing President Zelensky turn up in Avdivka or a Russian soldier seeing Putin rock up in um, in Henichesk in the in the Herzon region. I mean, the, the, the gulf in leadership between these two men is startling and i think it will be fascinating to see in the future how these are how these are seen and when the next the next would be autocrat comes along which one he or she tries to aspire to more thank you very much dom francis Dernley, can i come to you for your very final thoughts Thanks, David. I discussed the topic of negotiations earlier. For me, it's been noticeable in recent weeks how those perhaps not following the war as closely as us and our listeners are beginning to soften their stance somewhat, seeing this conflict as morphing into something of a stalemate that has to end via some kind of some concessions. And I think it really underlines an uncomfortable truth here, which is the importance, as I alluded to earlier, of the Ukrainian counteroffensive to shift the narrative once more, just as happened last year. Tragically, despite everything, the onus is still on Ukraine to prove itself. Last year, it did so on the battlefield specifically, and was able to show that those who doubted it was capable of launching counteroffensives at all were wrong. But now it has to show that in the battle of attrition that we've seen this year, that it is also able to launch a counteroffensive after that, and that it can, in this sort of more attritional war, come out on top. Because there are still many who doubt that in an attritional war against the great Russian bear, that it will be impossible for them to win that. So immense pressure on them. And as I say, those in the West who are beginning to lose attention on Ukraine and perhaps turn more to a focus on, on China... I think need to be very careful because any softening towards China is, I would argue, guaranteed to bolster Russia in Ukraine. It, you know, this is something that, that should be really inconceivable if we are to take the West at its word as to the importance of Ukraine for all of the reasons we've talked about in the past, particularly with regards to the kind of world that we want to or don't want to live in with the precedent that would be set here. After all, it bears repeating that this is the first time that a country 
with nuclear weapons has fought a war of conquest, essentially. The first time a country threatened to use those weapons if it doesn't get what it wants. And we need to think very carefully, the West, the free world, about the kind of precedent that we set here. If we don't want to live in a world where countries could do that and feel it's justified to do so, then Ukraine is vital. And so granting any concessions, arguably, to Russia is, it would be a huge, huge mistake, and one that, that almost undoubtedly historians would, would judge very harshly if things were to go wrong in future years with regard to more and more countries trying to acquire nuclear weapons and then to use them as military and political leverage, something that has been largely avoided for many decades. It's always been sort of the unspoken background issue, whilst, of course, what this war has done has put, for reasons we've talked about a lot in the past, put nuclear weapons front and centre to one's geopolitical positioning and prominence and importance and military power. And that's very dangerous, arguably. So we need to be very careful. And I think, you know, if, if, if one feeds a bear or a dragon, they, they may seem tame after a while, but the chances are they'll bite you eventually. And so I think there there's, needs to be some very, very serious questions asked at this moment, at this crucial juncture. And I know we talk about crucial junctures all the time, but this one does feel particularly important. And I think the counteroffensive, as I say, has to be something that, that wakes the worst up again as to the uh, fight of the Ukrainians and their absolute commitment to outright, outright victory. Because if it's anything less than that, then I can see a, a situation where certain countries in Europe do begin to wobble on some of their commitments and do start to say, well, perhaps this is a war Ukraine cannot win militarily. And so as a consequence of that, we need to bring things to a negotiation table sooner rather than later. So an uncomfortable final thought, David, but one that I think is important to reflect on at this vital moment. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.com. .co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 